Welcome to the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee of Denver City Council. The Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee begins now. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee. Uh, my name is Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez. I am one of the council members at large uh, and, and the chair of the committee. And uh, today is um, Wednesday, February 20, what? 21st. Okay. Thank you, Councilman Cash, <laughs> for being on the ready. Um, we'll go ahead and start with some introductions, and I'm going to start down on my far right. Hi, everybody. Sarah Parody, and I also represent the city at large. Good morning, everyone. Daryl Watson, Fine, District 9. Good morning, Amanda Sawyer, District 5. Good morning, Kevin Flynn, Southwest Denver's District 2. Uh, good morning, Paul Cashman, South Denver, District 6. Good morning, Diana Romero-Campbell, Southeast Denver, District 4. Stacy Gilmore, District 11. Great, and I'm just checking, make sure I forgot to check if we had anybody on Zoom. None, okay. Um, well, we have one thing on our agenda today, and that is a briefing from our partners over at Denver Health. And uh, it looks like we have quite a few folks here to present. And so I would like, love to welcome you up. Please you know, state your name when you're presenting. Um, and then we'll, we'll have our presentation, uh, and then we'll have time for questions from council members. So I'm not sure who's starting um, from the list of folks here. I, have, I think um, Stephen, Matthew, Dr. Bloom, Good morning, council members. Thank you so much for having us here. Uh, my name is Dr. Josh Bloom. I am the current medical director of outpatient substance use disorder treatment at Denver Health um, in the outpatient behavioral health uh, services department. Um, thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak. I'm gonna introduce, I'll let our, my colleagues introduce themselves and we'll let Matt Hogue kick it off. Good morning, my name is Steven Zapor. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am the Behavioral Health Services Operations Manager for Denver Health, and we look forward to talking to you this morning. Good morning, Council. My name is Matthew Hogue. I am uh, our Director of Integrated Behavioral Health Services in Denver Health um, in our ambulatory care services, and I really appreciate the honor of being here today. So I, we're here to talk about Denver Health and substance treatment, behavioral health treatment, and what that looks like within our system of care. Denver Health is our safety net hospital system here in Denver, and we're really proud of that. What we're really proud of is all the many things that we do and how we try to connect all those services together. Um, we have a graphic up here. It's a really, it's just a snapshot of all the many things we're doing within behavioral health with, at Denver Health. About five years ago, we started a hub and spoke approach to, uh, um, to opioid use disorder, um, which is a collaboration between our specialty behavioral health services, outpatient behavioral health services, which uh, my two colleagues oversee, and our community health services. Um, we're here to talk about some of the work we've done over that the last few years and Really exciting, excited to sh uh, share um, our newest project, which is our mobile unit, which is providing methadone treatment within our community health center. 
So we are so lucky at Denver Health to have um, an incredible wealth of resources for addiction treatment. Uh, and I'll just mention a few of these without um, going into too much detail. Um, we can always, of course, answer additional questions afterwards. Um, Denver Health is, uh, to my knowledge, one of only two hospitals in the state of Colorado that has an inpatient addiction consult team. That means that when you're admitted to the hospital, uh, if you are, uh, if you have a substance use disorder, whether or not that was related to the cause of your admission, um, you have the ability to be intervened upon while you're on the inpatient side. And that's often a golden moment for people when they're most receptive to getting help. Um, and so that team uh, has the ability to link people into that service, uh, into that hub and spoke model. We also have a, a team called the Treatment on Demand team that is uh, funded through our city operating agreement. Um, this provides for uh, counselors and social workers who can provide 24 seven uh, um, interview, uh, induction uh, interviews and biopsychosocial intakes into our system in our Denver Health Emergency Department. Um, we also have navigators and educators and we have a program called the Access Transformative Outreach Program, which is a special program designed to intervene upon the highest utilizing Medicaid population, the most ill, um, particularly people with dual diagnosis, meaning a substance use disorder and a psychiatric disorder, often complicated by a medical disorder like a traumatic brain injury or other cognitive issues um, to try to bend the curve on their utilization of emergency services and improve um, health outcomes. We also have um, some, uh, a lot of community facing uh, materials. Um, one thing we're particularly proud of is a community line. This is a number that people can call for help. Um, a lot of times when people do need assistance for substance use disorder treatment, they don't necessarily know what they need. They don't know if they need inpatient, residential, outpatient, intensive outpatient, and people don't even know what those terms sometimes mean. They just know that they or their loved one needs help. And so by calling this community line, you get asked some questions and you can get triaged and um, coordinated into care directly into that hub and spoke model, depending on um, how you answer those questions or what your loved one needs. And that uh, line will be expanding um, courtesy of funds through the Opioid Abatement Council, the Denver Opioid Abatement Council, which is gonna let us um, increase capacity for that and hopefully increase advertising so that people in the community use this line uh, even more. Um, and then we have data support because obviously you cannot do this work without having data to see the results of your work and to see where you're falling short. Um, so we are building out our uh, uh, our team that helps with um, pulling data and helps with um, building out and addressing the gaps in care. We're also building out the alcohol use disorder continuum of care, similar to what we built for opioids, because as many of you know, uh, alcohol um, is actually, alcohol use disorder is increasing, the complications of alcohol use disorder are increasing, and this continues to be the substance that uh, is by far the most costly in society and perhaps the most dangerous as well. Um, I, I was also just asked, I love to put in a plug for um, what we do when we treat people with opioid use disorder. Um, many of you are probably aware of this, but uh, medications for opioid use disorder, namely me medications like methadone and buprenorphine, save lives, hard stop. There's absolutely no argument. This isn't controversial. There's, um, this has been proven in study after study. Uh, the... Um, 
the mortality risk is, results in 25 fewer deaths per thousand person years of people who continue treatment. You just die less when you're on these medicines. This has also continued. We have some retrospective studies in this current epidemic of fentanyl that that death rate has increased from a baseline of maybe two per thousand patient years to maybe about three and a half. But these medications are still effective and still vastly lower the risk of death. Um, in a recent study of about 130 patients uh, who were using fentanyl, those who were on methadone, zero died. Those who came off of methadone, four of them died. So you just die less on these medicines. These are absolutely life-saving interventions. Not only do you also lower the risk of opioid use disorder or death from opioid overdose, but also suicide risk. Uh, cancer, cardiovascular mortality are reduced in people who are on medications for opioid use disorder. And some people will argue that, well, people just then come off of those medications and then they're right back where they started from. But we don't use that paradigm for any other disease. When people are on hypertensive treatment and their blood pressure lowers on those medicines, if they come off those medicines and their blood pressure returns to an elevated level, we don't say they failed hypertension treatment. We don't say they failed diabetes treatment when, uh, when they stopped their diabetes medicines. And this is just an example of the kind of data we are collecting, where we collect information about where people enter our system, what their primary substance of choice is, where they were referred to, whether they came through our ED or inpatient services, whether they went to our community health clinics or to our, um, our hub, outpatient behavioral health services, whether they were started on methadone and where they were buprenorphine, how well they linked and how well they were retained. So um, we're very proud of uh, this data dashboard and what we can track and how, that, um, how those data change our management. Uh, in response to fentanyl, um, we just know that there is a great need to increase access to these medications. Um, there were recently some changes made to the federal uh, legislation, 42 CFR Part 8, just a couple weeks ago that were a welcome change. But for the time being, methadone remains a limited access medication in a highly regu regulated environment in methadone clinics. And that leads us to one of our newest programs, which is this unit right here, which is part of our um, mobile health centers. We just have it distinctly with that orange um, skyline there to differentiate from our other health centers that provide other specialty services. But our mobile methadone unit or MOMAT has been an amazing partnership um, in many ways. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to highlight all of those. We were able to start this through a grant through the behavioral health administration and with our funders through our managed service organization signal it's a two-year grant that started at the beginning of last year this has also been a beautiful partnership between our community health services and our specialty services and behavioral health because it's allowed us to take specialty and pair it with our community health centers our community health centers provide primary care treatment um, throughout our the communities of denver and are really uh, we strive to be a reflection of those that we serve Part of the vision for this grant is when someone needs these life-saving medications, they are often forced, to forced into a choice. Uh, because of the restrictions and um, limited access to methadone, a lot of uh, patients sometimes have to choose, am I gonna focus on my substance treatment or my medical health? Do I have time to do both? Do I have time to go all the way across town to stand in line early in the morning to receive my medication through a, an opioid treatment program 
I may not then have time to prioritize my other health needs. What we saw was an opportunity to really leverage our system in a very efficient way and have this mobile unit go to those health centers so it can provide this life-saving medication alongside preventative care treatment, which is what patients deserve. We saw an opportunity to really enhance the care of those patients in our community. And we thought this is the, this is the vehicle, no pun intended, to do that. <laughs> I did not prep that. Uh, <laughs> um, what I found so amazing about this is we, we pulled a team together, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, you can see on the unit there, those back stairs go up to um, a traditional dispensing window um, in the front. Uh, on the unit, there's also an exam room so that there's privacy to be able to complete assessments and to get someone initiated onto that medication. We've been fortunate that our community health centers also have addiction boarded uh, physicians who are also just as uh, motivated and passionate about this work as we are in specialty. Um, and so it's been a really just beautiful uh, collaboration between those two departments within Denver Health. Um, we, we, just, we first launched these services at the Eastside Health Center at the end of October and a couple of weeks ago just started at our second location at Westside Clinic. Um, the unit is there twice a week, um, is open for intakes for people who are coming in who may not be part of the system at Denver Health who would then get uh, receive an intake and get set up for, medi for medication-assisted treatment with methadone. Part of this too is we see an opportunity to really make sure that patients are also connected with primary care so that they can receive preventative services that they deserve. The unit is staffed very lean, in a lean fashion. We have a, a, a licensed professional counselor who is doing a bulk of the intake. We have a peer navigator who is helping with navigating other supports in the community. And we also have a, a navigator slash driver who is a jack of all trades, and she helps with making sure that our unit is working within our system at Denver Health, making sure they're working closely with the clinic staff so that patient can receive pick up their medications, uh, other medications within the clinic, use the lab, um, connect with primary care. So we've been very intentional of saying, you know, these are patients that already exist in our system who are having to go all across town to get all these services. How can we really enhance this care? And this has been how we've done it. So I've, I've gone through some of this. We'll make sure this presentation is available. Um, but as I said, we just started providing services at our second location at Westside. And we had a really, I actually had a very personal uh, thing happen two weeks ago. I'm the director of integrated behavioral health. My team, we provide, you know, in, in the moment services in our primary care center. So if someone's coming in for primary care and they also have a need related to behavioral health, we're, we're set up to jump into that appointment if the patient is wanting to meet with us and say, hey, you know, we can offer these services or can we get you connected here or there? As luck would have it, the day before we launched at Westside, um, I was working at my clinic at Westwood Clinic and a patient came in. This patient I saw on the chart had previously uh, been connected with methadone and was here just as a routine follow-up to get something else checked out. I talked with this patient and they were saying, you know, I guess Suboxone, which is another medication assisted treatment that is traditionally provided within our setting. You know, I guess that because, you know, I have done methadone, but 
I just can't get there. I can't get there that early. I have to work. I'm trying to balance all this stuff with my family too. And it's just, you know, yes, it works better, but it's just not a reality for me. And, you know, I thought I was like on, you know, like a hidden camera or something because this person who just presented in front of me, I was able to tell them, what if, what if you could show up tomorrow to our West Side Clinic, which is pretty close to where, you're, where you live? We'll even send up your prescriptions that you're getting today to that clinic, and we could start you tomorrow. You'd be one of the first people at this location to receive this service. And he looked at me and was like, that, that can happen? I said, yeah, it can. We're one of the first in the country to do this. And so we connected with the team right there in the moment. He didn't have to wait any longer. He was able to get his health services um, during that primary care visit. And we had him on the schedule the next day and he came and he, and he continues to come and he's receiving those services, has his primary care there at Westside, all in one place, accessible, able to then focus on other things that he needs to lead a life that he wants and have high quality of life. And that's, I wanted to share that story because that's the whole point. Um, I was fortunate that I know, I, I led this project, so I knew exactly that this would be perfect for him. And so that's why we're here today. We wanna to share this because this is something that can be really impactful and really change people's lives. Um, so we wanted to share that work. We have information here, as Dr. Blumen mentioned, we have an external facing community line. So that's open to anyone within the community who's looking for anything or may not know where to start. And they have really good knowledge of not just our internal systems, but also our community partners and where someone might best um, receive the treatment that they need. Anything else, guys? Cool. Um, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're really excited and we want questions. We want um, yeah, please let, please let us know. Thank you for your, for your time. Thank you so much. I wanted to make sure we also recognize other folks that are here from Denver Health. We have, of course, um, and if you'd like to come up and introduce yourself, so Dr. Federico, um, feel free to come up, and, and uh, other members that are here too, just in case, you know, you might be able to be helpful in answering of any questions, because. Thank you, Madam Chair. My name is Dr. Steve Federico. Um, I've had the opportunity to testify for you guys multiple times the Chief of Government Community Affairs. Um, really appreciate you guys giving us the opportunity to present um, on a non-core service. We present often and frequently on many services, but given the pressing need related to substance use disorder and the associated diagnoses, it's fantastic to have the opportunity to highlight the work of this great team, the innovation that this great team has done. I think it's another <laughs> example of despite some of our financial limitations, our team's desire to leverage their expertise and find resources and respond to the community's demand. It's another example of our unique and necessary role that we fulfill in the, in the Denver community. And with your support, we look to continue to do that. I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Thurstone, the Chief of Psychiatry to potentially touch on that just a bit more, but we're happy to entertain any questions on this fantastic work that this team is engaged in, thank you. Hi, my name is Chris Thurstone. It's good to see you all. Thank you for inviting us here today. I'm a child psychiatrist, addiction psychiatrist, director of behavioral health services for Denver Health. Um, and with respect to addiction treatment, just want to convey that there is treatment, there is hope. Treatment's very effective in many cases, as effective as the treatments we have for anything else, high blood pressure, cholesterol, you name it. Um, and the main um, issue is just treatment access. We need to try to make it available and 
Um, we at Denver Health are eager to be of service and we have a full continuum of treatment from um, neonatal withdrawal to adult adolescent adult substance treatment and across different spectrums to school-based health centers, intensive outpatient treatments, and then inpatient residential treatments. And we're at your service. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie, I don't know if you wanted to introduce the rest of the folks that are here, or do we have any other buddy from the other Denver Health team? I will just say that you did get Stephanie Siner, Denver Health. Um, you did get a, a folder with all of the information because this is a lot to digest in one um, committee meeting. So if you need ha or have questions after reading through those, we're happy to discuss further about specific treatments that we do have. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for joining us. I'm going to um, flip us over to questions from Council. We'll start with Councilman Cashman. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, thanks for the presentation. Thank you all for the great work that you do. I've got like 11 to 12 questions, so I'm going to go quick. Um, does, does Denver Health have what I think of as a a traditional 30-day uh, treatment program like you'd expect a place like Parker Valley or Harmony or whatever? Thank you, uh, Councilman Cashman. That's a great question. Um, we, we do not have, um, so a typical 30-day um, is probably most akin to what we call a 3.7 intensive residential treatment program. We presently do not have that level. Mm -hmm. What we do have though, and we have had over many years is a transitional residential treatment program level, which is um, sometimes referred to as ACM 3.1. And that would be our Denver CARES program over there, pretty close to us off 11th and Bannock. I do wanna stress that level of care is really vital because it is for people, it's that step right above intensive outpatient. Um, so it is a residential level of care and it's really geared um, to help individuals transition to that outpatient level to kind of step down. It gives them a good place um, to really get, get that support, sometimes even get back to work, build up a nest egg to then be able to transition to affordable housing and independent supports um, at a lower level. So we do have that. Great, thank you. Um, so the mobile van that we're talking about, uh, where does it go? Does it have a regular schedule? Does that change? Absolutely. So presently with this grant, this mobile unit goes to two of our health centers, okay. uh, the Eastside Health Center and our Westside Health Center twice a week. So it is going to Eastside on um, Tuesdays and Thursdays um, from, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like seven to three, eight to 115. And then, so it goes to Westside on Wednesdays and Fridays to provide this. Great, thank you. Um, you mentioned the uh, addiction consult. Yeah. Uh, so I go in because I've got something with my spleen. So how how does that work? What tips you off? Do you talk to every patient about addiction or what? Great, great question. Thank you, Councilman Cashman. So within our um, our community health centers that provide primary care, we have embedded teams of uh, behavioral health professionals. Some specialize in general behavioral health. Some team that I oversee uh, specializes in substance treatment, and so they are part of that care team. And so they're looking at a number of different data points. They have, okay. they can see, you know, we can run reports to see if someone's, you know, just recently been treated at the hospital for a substance related reason. Um, we can also, we also do some screening questions as well yeah. as part of their health to help identify those opportunities. We also, as an organization have been really, um, Dr. Blumen mentioned kind of our works with um, data analysis with this across our continuum. 
historically our programs have um, generally been focused in the areas of their program. And so we're trying to really create that glue to bind everything together. So if someone is seen inpatient and they're seen by our addiction consult liaison team in the inpatient unit, that unit would meet with the patient, say, hey, you live close to this health center. Do you wanna meet with Matt over at Westwood? And they go, yeah. And they get them a traditional aftercare appointment similar to what you would get with primary care as an aftercare appointment from a hospital. Great, so um, what drug do you find is mentioned most often through your uh, consult and through your community phone line? That's a great question. And I'll have my colleagues keep me honest here. But you know, I think um, as Dr. Blumen mentioned, alcohol is definitely the more, most pervasive substance that we see and treat um, within the community. Um, but we definitely see a lot of different substances. And regardless of what level, whether it's addition consult liaison, we have ways of connecting them to specialty programs sometimes. Um, our outpatient behavioral services, for instance, has a really robust contingency management program, with, which is an evidence-based practice specifically for stimulant use. And so we, when we identify that, we wanna to try to get patients to levels of care that are gonna be most beneficial based on what we know works. Sure. So, and, and this is my last section of questions, and don't, don't get on me. Um, <laughs> So you, you mentioned, and I've heard you say it before, and I've talked a, a, a bit along the way with Dr. Thurstone about this, but that the cost of society of alcohol is greatest of any drug. Give me a multiplier. I, I, I know this is more like coffee table chat, but are we talking two times as much, a hundred times as much? Because I'm wondering why we don't have a van yeah. driving around about yeah. alcohol. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And maybe Dr. Thurstone has the research. Uh, um, I, I will say like before Dr. Thurstone comes up is, you know, I think we do have a lot of different ways of um, creating access for alcohol. And so that's where like bands like this are important because there is so little access to medication assisted treatment for opioid use specifically methadone. And so that's where this is really valuable. But I, I think your point is well taken. And we have worked with our other mobile units to say, how can we get more integrated behavioral health, including substance treatment into some of those other modalities like mobile health? Like how can we make sure that we have um, good resources to connect um, with anyone, regardless of how they're experiencing our health system? So I think it's a great point. You want to speak to the alcohol numbers? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see here. Thank you, Councilman Cashman, for your interest and questions regarding this. Uh, alcohol is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Um, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, they've published that paper twice now, and it continues to be the third leading cause of death. Uh, the ninth leading cause of death is illicit substance use. So that's basically all the other substances. Um, alcohol causes about uh, just shy of $1 trillion of economic damages to the country as a whole. Um, Colorado has rather high alcohol use rates compared to the rest of the country. Um, there's some significant opportunities um, to do some public health work around alcohol, um, specifically improving access to treatment, um, increasing alcohol taxes, restricting sales, all those things have been shown to reduce accidents and harm related to alcohol use. Um, let's see here, Denver, Denver has been on the forefront of 
um, treating alcohol as a medical condition as opposed to incarcerating people for this. And that's why Denver Cares has been around for I think 40, 50 plus years. And um, we've uh, been in conversations with other people from the city and from Matt Ball, who I see is here as well, um, to just try to coordinate and optimize Denver Cares and make it a place where people like really want to come and uh, have different sections and pathways to get into treatment from there. Yeah, I thank you so much for that. And, and I would just offer, you know, I had a, uh, um, an application come forth in my district for uh, a marijuana dispensary. Um, and, and people in, in the, my district in the, in the Wash Park area, there was a group very concerned and, and I understand their concern because it was opening up two doors down from Bonnie Bray ice cream families and whatnot. If you know the area, Bonnie Bray ice cream is immediately attached to the largest liquor store in that part of the city. And there are, I think, five additional liquor licenses on that block where you can go and bring your kids with you. Um, so I would just say that while I understand there may be more access points for alcohol, I think in the mind, there's still too many people sitting at home going, that's just booze. It's not fentanyl. And I think we need to, for everyone's best interest, be at least equally aggressive in how we bring that to people's attention. Thank you, and thank you for your patience, Madam Chair. Of course. Uh, next up, I have Councilman Flynn. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Dr. Bloom, I'm hoping maybe, I don't know if you'd be able to do this here and now, but maybe get back to us if you can't. But on slide four, I, I love data and I love slicing and dicing data. Uh, there were just too many data points on here for me to keep my head from swimming. And, if, and the little graphic in the middle kind of looks like a circuit board. And I couldn't, I couldn't uh, interpret it. So I'm looking at um, uh, medication saves lives, and we all uh, agree with that. Uh, I don't know if you can get to slide four on there, uh, so the people at home can see. Yeah, right there. Uh, lowers risk of death by two thirds. Mortality drops sharply in the first four weeks. 25 fewer deaths per thousand person years. Risk of death six times higher in the first four weeks. And then we have the risk factors on the other the other side. Um, I'm trying to combine all those numbers. So risk of death six times higher in the first four weeks, but if you get through those first four weeks, there are 25 fewer deaths per thousand person years. This is a national statistic, not Denver specific, correct? This is based, you know, first of all, famous technique of physicians is we throw up a really incomprehensible graph and we say like, trust us. Well, it's, like your, it's like your handwriting. So yeah, it's like your handwriting on the prescriptions, right? No yes. one can read it. Exactly, you're not meant to try to interpret this, but this is um, looking at, this, this is what's called a meta-analysis. It's combining yes. all of the data across the world, right. actually, about methadone. About 100,000 patients have been studied in, when it comes to methadone, somewhere around 10,000 for Suboxone. The risk of death being six times higher is the first four weeks off treatment. So when someone stops treatment, oh, the risk of death goes, okay. you know, basically goes sky high. And actually, we just heard a case this morning of, of somebody who was being treated in the hospital for a pretty severe psychiatric condition, but wasn't maintained on their methadone for their opioid use right. disorder, got discharged from the hospital and, and died very quickly. And we know places like incarceration is another, is another uh, site where if you release from incarceration, not on medications, you have opioid use disorder, you're 123 times more likely to die 
in uh, after release. So, so it's mm -hmm. so important to maintain those medicines. But um, uh, yeah, that's that's just showing a plot of all the different studies uh, that have been used in this okay. analysis. Understanding that, and I, and I guess I read the uh, six times higher in the first four weeks of treatment. I missed the second F there, so it's off treatment. So now what I'm trying to understand is the scope of the problem, the scope of the scope of the issue in Denver. Uh, 25 fewer deaths per thousand person years could be impressive if it were 25 fewer deaths per uh, out of you know 50, uh, or uh, but it'd be less impressive as if it were 25 fewer deaths per thousand out of a population of 10,000, right? Yeah. So can you give us a sense of total numbers, whole numbers here in Denver who are in the program, who go off the program, and, and what is the mortality? in Denver of those who continue treatment versus those who go off. Do we have this same outcome here, which looks looks impressive? We we believe we do. So you, there are a lot of questions in there. I'm gonna see if I can um, answer a couple. One is we, we do have a fentanyl early warning dashboard that specifically tracks fentanyl deaths in Denver City and County alone. Mm -hmm. We are still waiting for final numbers for 2023, but it's around 500 deaths in the city and county of Denver just from fentanyl alone, not from other drugs, a substantial increase from 2022. We actually saw a drop from 2021 to 2022 and think, thought maybe things would look a little bit better, but it's actually gone high, uh, substantially higher. So it's 500 something overdose deaths just in Denver city and county from fentanyl use alone. Um, probably another 30% on top of that in terms of total drug overdoses. I think when you look at a number like 25 fewer deaths per thousand person years, that means a thousand patients in treatment for one year. Right. This is death. This is not, you know, complications. This is a, a very hard stop, worst case Just mortality. outcome, right? Mortality. So um, that number compares highly favorably to any intervention in medicine. That's actually far more extraordinary than anything you get with cholesterol lowering medicine or diabetes lowering medicines in terms of in terms of that kind of impact on mortality. Our clinic, I don't know the total numbers of people in treatment in Denver. I think across Colorado, it's uh, somewhere probably close to 10,000 people who are in treatment for their opioid use disorder. Um, at our particular clinic, at any given time, we're treating about 550 clients on methadone. We probably have about um, double that number if you combine the people who are on um, buprenorphine-based treatment and methadone in the city of Denver. So we're only treating about a thousand people, and we know there's a tremendously greater need than that. Thank, uh, thank you, Doctor. That's much more clear for me, at least, than just to see 25 fewer per thousand person years. Is this a public-facing dashboard? Are there statistics? Are there numbers that you publish for the public to consume? We do not have a public-facing dashboard at Denver Health. This is our. This other dashboard was our is our internal yes. dashboard for tracking referrals, but we right. do not have anything that uh, is publicly facing uh, specific to our data on um, how many people are in treatment and retained in treatment. Okay, thank you. It would be uh, wonderful. It's one up. It would be wonderful if uh, maybe we could get a, a follow-up email with some numbers to really put faces. Even, although we wouldn't be able to have actual faces, but instead of you know deaths per thousand, how many? Uh, a thousand at a time is a, is a really good number to have. Thank you, go ahead. Councilman Flynn, I wanted to add to um, patients receiving methadone also tend to have two times as many chronic health conditions 
And so that contributes to mortality, but also shows the need that we need to have these services as integrated or co-located with preventative primary care, because that's a benefit, not just to patient care, but for, for the community as a whole. Um, and methadone specifically is very hard to fund. And so we, we are fortunate to have this grant. We are gonna work with our grant partners, but that's another thing that I wanna highlight from the federal level is this, this, this isn't done everywhere because it's a hard thing to do. And so um, increasing access is important and it's helping breaking down stigma to be able to leverage the safety that patients have with their community health centers. These are places that families have gone multiple generations throughout the years. They trust those providers and to be able to add that service there, that breaks down stigma. That makes it okay for me to go to my doctor and say, hey, I'm struggling with this and say, yep, we can help you with that. So I just want to add that as well. Like this is very, very critical. Thank you, Steve. Much appreciated. And thank you, Denver Health, for having the, the vehicle uh, out on the west side and the east side uh, because access is one of the biggest inhibitors sometimes for folks who can't get down to the campus. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And I got to say, uh, this was a little bit of a, a setup layup for Denver Health. I mean, I don't think we need one more reason to love y'all uh, more than we do. And then here you come, you roll in a, a methadone clinic in Eastside East um, Center that's uh, saving lives, providing access, providing accessibility uh, for necessary uh, treatments. Uh, I've got a quick comment and I've got two questions. I had the, um, the opportunity, I was invited by um, the amazing Stephanie uh, sitting over there to um, walk through the, the, the methadone clinic um, on, at Eastside Clinic uh, last week, was it last week? Uh, I was so impressed with the staff and the, um, the work that you're doing um, in our community. Uh, the fact that you are set up at the oldest, and I believe, uh, clinic um, in uh, the city and county of Denver and providing access to folks who often um, have not had the greatest access to healthcare and especially healthcare where there is some level of stigma um, in the black and brown community. And so I truly appreciate all that you are doing. Uh, you know that Eastside is where my mom goes and I know she's watching us as well. Uh, and um, I appreciate each of you for the work that you do on a daily basis. So now the questions. Um, as a city council member, we look at the money. Um, you have a mobile clinic. You said a two-year grant, and I was kind of quick in your sound bites. Um, we're a year and a half in now. Um, can folks talk to me about what is your process for renewing that grant? And I don't need to know the money, how much the grant was, but as someone here that can speak to your process for renewing that grant, and then I have a follow-up on that. That, that's an excellent question, a really fantastic question and a difficult question to answer. Yeah. One thing I wanna I'll point out is, as you know, a, a methadone unit like this is enormously expensive and it's staffed with a bunch of people, including like you said, a, a navigator, a peer support specialist, a counselor. One of the beautiful things about Denver Health that makes us so different as opposed to somebody implementing a van and just parking it on the street and co-locating everything in the, in the unit is that as, as Matt mentioned, we actually have addiction medicine certified providers in both of those clinics. 
and we already have counselors in both those clinics. So when we think about um, trying to operationalize this uh, mobile unit over the long term, the, the beauty is by parking it at east side and west side, we get to leverage the resources of those two clinics. We can use the providers who are already there, the counselors who are already there, the lab that's already there. So we don't have to kind of staff it fully as a fully self-supporting mobile unit on its own. And essentially we can strip it down so that it, it becomes what is a rolling mobile dispensary um, with all the other pieces provided in the clinic. So that's gonna hopefully allow us to operationalize this at a fraction of the cost of what the grant actually costs. And then uh, Stephen, I don't know if you wanna talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Good morning, it was good to see you last week and thank yeah. you for visiting. And as you mentioned, staff are what makes this unit work. In terms of the grant, um, we continue to look at the financial analysis of how much revenue we're bringing in. So we're constantly looking at how much we can offset of that expense. And then if we can't, we continue to work with our funders to either request more or determine if there's under other funders or other grant opportunities. There's always state opioid response grants and other things that come down the pipeline. We just got another request this week for a grant opportunity. So if we are not able to work with one funder, then we will shift to looking at other potential funders who can, who are interested in uh, funding these types of programs. And then again, we are also looking at as we ramp up what the patient population is, what the volume is going to be, and how much revenue we're going to be able to collect through Medicaid that's going to be able to offset some of this expense. And when does your grant expire? Um, the, uh, yes, the December 2024. December 2024. Okay. And is it a funding mix of uh, federal, <laughs> state, local um, tar targets for your grants, or is it one entity that you currently are receiving that grant for? That uh, first grant? Right, that this specific grant comes through the signal and um, yeah, through the state opioid response through signal. Okay. And then, but as Dr. Bloom said, we have other resources across Denver Health that are supporting it, okay. not necessarily funded. The only positions funded on this are the people on the actual van and then the van and all of the things that come along with that are supported by the grant as well. Yeah, I, I think such an innovative program because you go to the methadone um, clinic in that van, but then you can have end-to-end -end primary support, including dental, which is something that's often missed and that also aggravates any other underlying health conditions that folks may have. And someone has that in one-stop shop. I was absolutely blown away. My second question, final, would be around the number of patients necessary to meet the, uh, the grant requirements. And I'm certain there's some target of how many folks you need to see. Curious as to where you're at on that, and then how can we as council encourage more folks within community to access um, the mobile units so you could possibly uh, meet or exceed those grant targets. So are there grant targets for the number of folks served and um, can you share within percents, you'd have to say the number, um, are you close to that? Do you need support and how can we as council support you? Yes, great question. I think it's about 15 patients a week is the goal, um, which, is a, which is a small goal to start with and we're continuing to ramp up. Right now, I actually just did the data last week and send it over to Signal. I think we have between 10 and 15 active patients. But what we need from you is to continue to market this to your patients, continue to market this to, um, to, your, to the people who want not only primary care, but also who are interested in substance use. I think Matt's patient example was a great example of people think that, they're, that they cannot get connected to these resources. Getting across the city down to the Denver Health Campus can be difficult, three or four buses. We have opportunity, we have funds to lift people from other places to Eastside, to lift other people from 
um, other places to Westside. I'm also over our SUN program, um, which is our substance use navigation program. So they're out in the community at a lot of the encampments and the micro villages. We visited one of the micro villages, micro communities last week. And so our SUN team is continuing to partner with them. And so we're also working on how can they, if patients are interested in treatment, how can we get patients from these micro communities either to east side, west side, or down to Denver Health. So we're continuing to connect our hub and spoke models and really trying to grow our community resources. I'll also add that, you know, we were really well positioned to do this incredible work because of our larger organization too. We, we've leveraged our mobile health systems who have been providing mobile, mobile care in various um, different parts of the community for several years. And we would have been up a creek if we did not have those experts who know how to run these vehicles, know how to keep them maintained. I am never gonna have an RV myself after this experience because this isn't, this isn't just an RV, this is an RV that DEA has to come and inspect and say like, yeah, you're good to go. So I wanna say we, we are the experts in this area and we were well positioned for that. And we are very thankful to be up and running um, and providing services right now. But you know, I, I do want to also mention that with historically with substance treatment, we've often really put it on the patient to be ready for us. This is one of those few things where we've invested in, no, we're gonna be ready for you. You come get your primary care, we're gonna screen, we're gonna look for these and ask you about your care. And then we're going to connect you to it without making you go through three hoops in order to, to get the services that you deserve. And so I, I want to hit that really important because that's how our field is changing. I think 10, 15 years down the road, we won't need to have mobile units as much based on where we're going. But this is needed right now because it just doesn't exist anywhere right now. Excellent. So in closing, uh, please reach out. My team will reach out to you. We're absolutely going to put this information in our newsletter. Uh, coming forward, and I look forward also to um, working with you uh, in any ways that we can encourage folks to um, extend grants or find opportunities to make sure this is funded. We're in a tight budget process, um, but 100% um, Denver Health needs to be able to grow and support our communities, and this is one good way that you're doing it. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Madam Chair. So awesome. Great, thank you. Uh, Councilwoman Sawyer. Thanks, Madam Chair. Um, thanks, you guys. This is absolutely amazing, and I really appreciate you coming and sharing it with us. Um, Councilmember, like Councilmember Watson, I am always interested in the money, so really appreciate that. Um, and I and I won't ask any more of those questions. But I did want to talk a little bit more about the outreach piece because in your presentation on the last slide, you have like three different phone numbers for people to call, right? And then, and what we hear in our offices all the time is like, do I call police non-emergency? Do I call 911? Do I call 311? Do I call the poison control center? Do I call the helpline? Do I call 811? Right, there's like all of these different numbers that exist and it's so confusing for residents, especially residents in crisis. Um, so I'm curious about leveraging partnerships with the city in terms of communication. So, you know, is our, I'm gonna ask a bunch of questions, but you can, you'll get the picture and you can sort of answer it generally if you want, but is our 311 service connected to this? Do they have, have you filled in with Salesforce the language for our 311 representatives to be able to um, send someone who might be calling 311 to you all um, for help and services if they're, you know, in crisis or they're in need of these services. Is there, um, you know, are our 911 response or uh, answerers 
trained in this to be able to connect with you all and, and connect those numbers. Is there a way for you to streamline down to one number um, for us to say to our residents, if you need help from Denver Health, call this number? Or do you see what I'm like? I'm, I, I think if there is a way to leverage partnerships with the city and simplify this for our community, it could be used so much more effectively, I guess. Um, so just curious whether any of those different kinds of conversations are happening. Thank you, Councilman Sawyer. Those are all excellent questions. I think we are still working towards a lot of that. And I think we'd be very interested in partnering in a lot of those areas. I will say our um, external facing community line um, would is just received a grant actually in January. And part of that goal of that grant is to really staff that in a way so it can be a um, an active line and not a warm line, meaning, okay, you know, having, actually when you call someone, you can have someone reach someone. Um, part of that too is that that grant is also focused on not just Denver Health, but just the community at large around um, connecting individuals with substance treatment. So I could see that as a potential avenue. Uh, but I think your point is well taken. I think this is part of the challenge we're trying to solve as well. And so we'd be um, interested in connecting around those different um, options. We have worked as part of the stakeholder engagement of this grant. We did work with our uh, local um, uh, resource officers in those different districts to make sure they were aware uh, around, you know, this is what we're doing, get feedback. So I think we just need to do more stakeholder in engagement too with those areas too. You want to speak to Sue? Uh, yeah, great questions. And actually this is some of the work we have been doing. We actually had a meeting yesterday and there's a big lean event scheduled with 33 programs across the city scheduled in March where we're starting to do this work. Some of this is grant funded. So we're continuing to look at the positions and basically trying to make it as easy on the patient as possible so that they can get to the right place without having to get to, without having to contact multiple different programs. That's really great. I will just say, you know, we are always looking for ways to partner better. We are always looking for ways to help shore up um, gaps that we know our residents face. And this is a, it's a zero cost one, right? It mm -hmm. costs absolutely nothing to create a section in our sales force for when someone calls 311 um, that there is the right direction to get them to you all for the services that they need. It, it, it's, it feels sitting up here so easy. I know that with funding mechanisms and contracts and agreements, like it's never as easy as it looks, right? But I, it feels like there is an opportunity here for us to better partner to help support our residents. And so I really appreciate knowing about that and I, I hope it works. Thanks. Thanks, Madam Chair. All right, uh, Councilwoman Parity. Yes, I've been typing and retyping all of my questions. Um, thank you guys so much for coming in today. This, this is um, one of the topics that I think um, all of us hear about constantly from city agencies, from community, um, just that we're failing on the opioid crisis. Um, and I, I mean that societally, I certainly don't mean you, <laughs> you are not failing. Um, so thank you for coming and helping us understand a little more of the fine grain of what you're doing. Um, so some questions that I have, I was, um, I'm trying to understand a little bit more about like the background landscape. Um, so in other words, um, the degree of inpatient care that's provided for substance use, which I believe is primarily Denver Cares, but I don't, I don't know. So, um, and then um, you were talking about kind of numbers of patients per day. I was looking at this slide six uh, with the all, the, all the blue bars on it, um, the chart that is hard to understand. Uh, the one that has the little, uh, the blue bars of uh, visits in emergency departments and so on. 
across different months of the year. Um, and I was trying to understand from that sort of like how many total medication administrations we're talking about altogether um, in, in your different outpatient uh, spots. And then the follow-up question to all of that is like, what would it look like to scale? Like what capacity do you have? And what, if you're thinking like, this is so needed, we wanna you know increase and grow, um, putting aside the fact that there's never money, um, what would that look like? Like how much um, uptake do you think you could get in these mobile vans? Um, and then finally, I'll just put all my questions out so I can then be quiet and let you all answer. Um, if the van is um, stationed at the different health clinics like twice a week or something like that, methadone, as I understand it, is a daily treatment. So how does that work out for patients? Those are my questions. Thank you so much. Those are fantastic questions. Um, and if you don't have answers to all of them, we're, we're always happy to get follow-up information by email. So that's that's always an option. Yes, um, but thanks for whatever you, you have here. Maybe we can provide written responses to some of those uh, afterwards, uh, Councilwoman. Um, just a, a couple uh, a couple points. One, you mentioned methadone is a daily medication, um, but as uh, um, has recently been codified, um, um, first through the COVID public health emergency, then the overdose um, public health emergency, and then with changes to 42 CFR Part 8, we now have greater latitude to provide take-home doses to patients. It used to be you had to be in treatment for 90 days before you got a single take-home dose of methadone, which was just mind-boggling if you think about it. We were always closed on Sunday, so you got to take out for Sunday, but you had to come to the clinic six days a week, every single week for 90 days before you got a single take-home dose. I don't know how many of us could possibly adhere to a program like that. Um, I know I couldn't. And so now, uh, essentially, we can immediately start people on up to a week of takeouts. After two weeks in treatment, up to two weeks of takeouts. After four weeks of treatment, up to 28 days of takeouts. Effectively, what this has done for the mobile unit is we tend to dose people twice a week. We're only at those units. We're only at those sites twice a week. We're going to give you doses to, to take you through to that uh, next day that the mobile unit is there. If for some reason you lose doses or you're shown to be sort of um, to have a difficult time managing those doses or don't have the capacity to do so, we would then refer you down to outpatient behavioral health services to the, to the mothership, so to speak, to get um, more frequent dosing if you, if you needed it. Um, so, uh, but we're so grateful to have some of the changes that we've seen in, uh, in the legislation that allow us to give patients more latitude and that have been proven over time and with the COVID pandemic, we're proven to actually improve retention without increasing risk. We did not see an uptick in overdose deaths from methadone, either in our own patients or in other people when we started giving people more take-home doses for methadone at the onset of the, of the COVID pandemic. So um, that's been incredibly gratifying. Next, you mentioned what would it take to you know, scale up a program like this? I'll just say that the mobile unit is enormously expensive and is, is, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many others, not necessarily the way to scale up um, this intervention. Uh, SAMHSA, the, uh, the Substance Abuse uh, Mental Health Services Administration and the DEA do allow for satellite dosing clinics. And actually, when I think of what is a far more economical way to scale up um, co-locating methadone in primary care, it's actually to have satellite windows in primary care clinics so that we can then staff those. Um, a, a, a room in a building is a lot less expensive than a $250,000 um, mobile van and um, would allow us potentially to bring more uh, um, more treatment and to 
uh, as Matt said, really integrate methadone into primary care. I think that's the mind-blowing piece about what we're doing that is different from everybody else. It's not a standalone mobile methadone unit parked on the street somewhere. It is the idea that when you're getting primary care treatment, your behavioral health and your physical health are inextricably linked. They are, it is an artificial separation that we make that doesn't belong there. And someone who has a substance use disorder should have access to every single treatment in the primary care setting. And so that's what we love about the methadone unit. And to build out a, a separate dosing window in a in a building might be $40,000 single expense, um, plus the staff to, to staff that unit. But that can even be flexed by current staff in those clinics. So, you know, maybe if I had to estimate from a, again, from an operational standpoint, 40 or $50,000 times the number of, of clinics to, to do something like that um, with a home um, methadone treatment program. And other FQs can do that with, uh, by partnering with other uh, methadone treatment programs. It doesn't have, just have to be Denver Health. You had a whole bunch of other questions all Oh, the data. We've reported the data through the city operating agreement, so we're just finalizing the numbers at the end of the year, but it's about 175,000 doses of methadone we provide a year, and then about 18 to 20,000 um, doses or, or prescriptions of Suboxone. Councilwoman Parity, thank you for that question. Um, Chris Thurstone again. And um, in terms of scaling, I think that's a wonderful question. Um, we have outpatient services. Um, typically, we turn away as many as we see. Um, so there's scaling that can be done there. We're in 11 school-based health centers providing substance treatment. Um, there are 19 total school-based health centers, so there could be some scaling there that could occur. Um, then on the main campus, uh, we have more intensive outpatient services. Um, those are full with waiting lists as well, so there could be some scaling there. Uh, we have in the community resources, um, aggressive treatment, uh, which is also capped, I think, at about 100-ish patients or so. Um, so some scaling could happen there. Um, I'm kind of going up the level of care here. Then we have emergency treatments in our ER, um, which provides 24-7 um, um, induction onto uh, opioid use disorder medications. Those um, services are actually pretty overwhelmed right now. And uh, so there's a lot of scaling that could happen on the emergency department level in terms of getting people in 24 seven inducted onto methadone or Suboxone. Um, and then moving up the levels of treatment, uh, we have as um, Matt Hogue mentioned, Denver Cares, which is 3.1 level. So that's kind of um, community level withdrawal management. Um, and uh, the scale there is actually okay. Um, then moving up, we have transitional residential treatment, which is the 90-day program, which um, Matt Hogue also mentioned. Um, and the scale there is actually okay. Um, and then moving up, there was a question earlier about, I think Councilman Cashman had around intensive residential treatment. Um, so that's the traditional like two to four week model. And uh, I think that is really sorely missing underserved. There's a loss of opportunity for scaling that. We have partnership with Sobriety House because we don't offer that service ourselves. Um, and so we have a smooth pathway into that. When it comes to adolescent substance treatment, um, there I'm not aware of anything for adolescents with Medicaid um, who need intensive residential treatment. Um, so big opportunity there. 
And then moving up the levels of treatment for um, medical detoxification services, those are also uh, sorely missing. We actually don't specifically offer that um, at Denver Health with the exception of for adolescents. We just opened up what we think is the nation's only adolescent withdrawal management program um, in our hospital. Um, so that's an excellent question. And then also Councilman Watson, to your point too, we're very sensitive um, to looking at health disparities and health equity in our substance treatment. Uh, we just published one paper showing that when we offer school-based substance treatment, we eliminate um, those substance treatment disparities in terms of treatment access, engagement, and overall outcomes. Um, and also we have a paper in publication right now or under review right now related to when we offer transportation, we had a grant to have Lyft bring patients to treatment um, as well as Medicaid taxis. When we did that, um, when we were able to offer lunch, dinner, um, when we were able to also offer, get a grant and offer the contingency management, which um, also Matt Hogue mentioned, which is um, basically rewarding for negative urine drug screens, um, we're able, also able to eliminate health disparities and promote health equity. Um, so those are some important research. I think that's it. Thank you for your questions. <clears throat> Since you guys brought up finances, um, figured I'd take the microphone for a second. Um, I, I think the the team has done a great job of painting the picture of the great work that they do, but I think that they've uh, gone over way too humbly just how complex this work is, and how hard it is, and time intensive it is, um, and the reason to your question why haven't why hasn't it been taken to scale. I think fits with why don't other people do this work? And that's quite honestly, because at the policy level, at the societal level, as you point out, Council on Parity, we've not taken it on head on at the scale that it needs to be. It is not a financially viable business to be in. And as we've been up here, we Denver Health, uh, Don and myself multiple times, and shared with you the difficult decisions that we have to make. In other words, where are we gonna lose less money this is an area that has been limited in our ability to scale as a result of those difficult decisions. Lucky for you all, we'll be back in a few weeks talking about operating agreement and opportunities where we could potentially grow um, services like these and others that are so needed in our community. Matt Ball from the mayor's office has been actively engaged in thinking outside the box at what a more global system could look like on the continuum of this care but it is unfortunately gonna take more resources at the local, state and federal level to take these, 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 uh, these uh, uh, clinical uh, programs to scale to meet the needs of our community. So thank you for your interest and engagement. And I know you know that, but I think it's an important thing to, to mention. So appreciate it. Councilwoman, oh, I'm sorry. Councilwoman Parity, did you have any other questions? Councilwoman Romero Campbell. Thank you, Madam Chair. And again, thank you to all the doctors in your presentation today. I think this is um, so incredibly informative and interesting and so needed. So just thank you for the presentation today. Um, a lot of my colleagues asked a lot of the questions that, um, that I had uh, on my list, but I did wanna dig a little bit deeper into one thinking about the regions um, that uh, this is available. Um, throughout our entire city. And you mentioned the school-based clinics. I would say that's, we only have one school-based clinic in 
um, in the district that I represent, and that is in Southeast Denver in District 4. Um, and that is the only Denver Health Clinic that we have. Uh, and just wondering kind of that connection that we have for young people and their opportunity for, for this resource as well. I think I heard 11. Is that the, the number that? Councilwoman, thank you for that. Uh, yes, and we are, we do have substance treatment in Thomas Jefferson High School. Mm -hmm. And I will mention that uh, our therapists in the 11 school-based health centers typically have a full caseload in October and then develop a waiting list. Uh, so there's definitely room to scale that even in the programs where we exist. I, I just appreciate that and thank you so much. I did not know that that existed at TJ and so that is something that's uh, near and dear to my heart because I think that as we are talking in a very broad scale, people might have an image as to who might be receiving these resources and I think that the opportunity to continue to um, educate and expand who is who needs um, uh, treatment and care and who also needs that support is so critically important. Um, I just have one other thought that's more of a statement, but in our packet that you gave us today is the words matter. Um, the idea that you have, um, and I don't know if this is available, but is it available online? I think that so incredibly important, not only for us, but I think for a broader community, for those who are watching, um, to know words that we've used before, um, use it instead of words that might have been um, used um, for, uh, for, for uh, uh, individuals, and then also um, an explanation of because. And I just, I don't know if you have this online or can you talk a little bit more about this flyer? Sure. Um, so thank you, Councilwoman Campbell. Uh, and Stephanie Ziner will get you that um, mm -hmm. through. Uh, and so basically, yes, words matter. We're really trying to reduce stigma so that uh, people will have increased access to care and they'll be treated with dignity and respect when they do present for care. Um, one more quick point around adolescent substance treatment. Uh, we did publish an evaluation too that the adolescent substance treatment, like what happens at TJ, uh, not only improves substance outcomes, improves emotional well-being, improves um, academic performance as well. Councilwoman, I wanted to speak to that Words Matter campaign that was done through our Center for Addiction Medicine, which helps with that operational side of our data analysis for our programs across our continuum. And part of that work came out of looking at how our own teams document and use language mm -hmm. in medical charts and how that was an opportunity for us to do an educational campaign internally, because unfortunately, uh, most patients have had a negative uh, experience or stigma, perceived stigma within healthcare. And so we know that this is really crucial to make sure that we can break down those disparities, make sure that people feel comfortable talking with their health provider around this. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you again. I just really think that this is also that thread of equity as you are doing the work and doing the outreach. So kudos to you. And if this is available online, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Of course. I'm gonna um, go to Councilwoman Gilmore. Thank you, Madam Chair. I'm sorry I was late getting in there, but I um, wanted to make sure we had enough time um, for all the questions. So thank you so much for your presentation. And I'm um, curious about um, 
with the, the mobile unit, are you able to also prescribe um, like ant abuse or other tools that will help somebody um, on their path to recovery? And it would just be helpful to understand a little bit more about that. Thank you, Councilwoman Gilmer. That's a great question. Part of the intention of the unit is to pair with the community health center so that the patient is also um, enrolled in primary care so that they could have benefit to other medications for medication-assisted treatment, including an abuse. One area we are also looking into is how could we potentially get sublocade, which is an injectable form of Suboxone. There are a lot of um, challenges with um, getting that done even within our qualified, federally qualified health centers due to pharmacy regulations. And so we're looking at, are there unique ways to leverage each system to, to potentially provide more medication-assisted treatment options for patients? Um, I don't think the unit itself has that, but we have the ability to get that patient served potentially if that's something that's needed. Okay, great. And then um, I, I guess um, also understanding, um, and we probably won't have time today, but um, it would be helpful to understand what the further family supports are, because a lot of times you're talking about generational traumas. I mean, like for myself specifically, I mean, you talk to my 99-year-old great aunt, and her dad was an alcoholic. Her brothers were an alcoholic. My grandpa was. My dad, I have five years clean time. My partner celebrated 20 years clean time in December. So, I mean, it's, it's generational. And so I think the more that we're able to talk about that and show the successes and the stigma piece is real, um, reading that that sheet um, to kind of talk about how folks maybe refer to people when they share that they do have a medical condition and same as I take lisinopril for my blood pressure, I take an antidepressant, perimenopausal and menopausal women. Um, I would be very um, interested in when we as a society start talking about the true changes in perimenopausal and menopausal women because hormone replacement therapy is a life changer. Any woman out there, if you're suffering from hot flashes, get to your primary physician because you don't need to toe that line anymore. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And um, just the more that we can talk about this and more of those stories, I think are so helpful for folks because, you know, Councilman Cashman um, and I are friends, we go way back. And, you know, the thing that he said is so true that people think, ah, well, it's just booze. Well, my challenge to you is if you just think it's booze, try to stop drinking it for a period of time. And very quickly, you can tell if it's just booze or it's something else. And the shame needs to go away so that we can get you treatment so that you can live long and share your story with other people and, and help in that way. And so just thank you so much um, for that and look forward to any follow-up information on family supports um, that we can start start to break those generational traumas. Absolutely, and I can speak a couple to a couple of those points and thank you so much for sharing. I completely agree. I think stories are really powerful and it's what ties us together, but also helps move things forward. And so this is why community health is where this work has to be done. Um, I oversee our integrated behavioral health teams, and we are fortunate that we've been able to grow into specialty areas. So we're in pediatric clinics, we're in women's health, OB-GYN, with behavioral health interventions and, and team members that can step in and say, oh yeah, we're part of your team here, we can help you. From the, the two-generation approach 
100%. I know the state has been really invested in doing a two-gen approach around a lot of these areas of behavioral health. We do have a couple of specialty programs within um, outpatient behavioral services. I, I believe DeForge, and I don't know if Stephen, you want to speak to, or do you guys want to speak more specifically? To I can speak real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely, that would be great. Um, Councilwoman Gilmore, thank you for this. Um, we are definitely breaking generations of trauma related to this, huge overlap between trauma, adverse childhood events, and substance use disorders, as you mentioned. Um, and uh, Caring for Denver and some other funding partners have recently made available, um, enabled us to do more infant mental health work um, so that every child born in Denver has access to a really strong start. Um, infant mental health really increases the bonding and attachment between babies and their caregivers and has been shown to prevent um, psychiatric and substance use disorders into the second decade of life. And um, so we have infant mental health services available for people who are in the methadone program, um, for people in the hospital, and also Matt Hogue and his team um, have infant mental health services in multiple primary care clinics across the state. So again, that we can change this um, generational pattern. Thank you. Right on. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, I, I'm gonna probably wrap us up here, um, but I have a couple of questions real quick, specific to youth. Um, that are, and, and thank you, Dr. Thurstone, for, for addressing some of the things that are available. And so I just want to recap what I've heard. So there's an adolescent detox unit you mentioned. Um, I know that there is the STEP program that is outpatient um, that Denver Health has for, for youth um, so that are um, uh, dealing with substance use issues. Um, and then there's, I know that we talked about the school-based health clinic, specifically at TJ. Um, and then kind of also part of that, maybe not exactly, not an inpatient substance use, but there is the adolescent psychiatric unit at Denver Health as well. Are there other either substance use or mental health type um, programming available for youth, both inpatient and outpatient or home-based? Uh, thank you, Councilwoman, for the question. Uh, let's see here. We know that nationally, um, Pre-COVID, 6% of adolescents who needed substance treatment accessed care, 6%. Uh, Post-COVID, that dropped nationally to about 3%. Colorado is a little bit better. What I've seen is about 10%. So about 10% of adolescents with a substance use disorder access substance treatment in Colorado. Um, Denver Health uh, has 20 years now, we have the STEP program, Substance Treatment Education Prevention. Uh, we are currently in 11 school-based health centers and we can provide a list for you of those 11 school-based health centers. Uh, we're in the main campus as well, um, providing intensive outpatient services. Um, on the um, main campus, we're primarily, we have a waiting list rack capacity and we're um, prioritizing adolescents with opioid use disorder. Adolescents are the fastest growing population in terms of um, opioid overdose with the fentanyl epidemic. And I personally have lost seven adolescents in the last three years related to that. So that's very real for us in the city. Um, <clears throat> and then you were correct, Councilwoman, we have adolescent withdrawal management. Um, so the standard of care used to be present to an ER with a fentanyl overdose, 
get your medical attention, maybe get a list of resources and then um, discharge. Uh, we thought we could do better than that. So now we can admit these youth for a period of time, stabilize them on medication assisted treatment, um, give them a nice warm handoff um, to outpatient care. And um, as Matt Hogue mentioned also, sublocate is the one month injection for um, buprenorphine. And so a lot of times we'll discharge adolescents directly to an outpatient appointment where they can receive that injection that uh, really protects them for at least a month. Um, we also have um, uh, a new in-home funded by the Behavioral Health Administration, a new in-home uh, substance treatment for adolescents um, at Denver Health, which will be able to meet people where they're at and provide more intensive services that way. Uh, so that's kind of the lay of the land. We provide care for about 800 families uh, 800 adolescents per year at Denver Health through the STEP program with substance use disorder. Thank you for that. Um, so before coming here, I, I, I worked pretty much in the juvenile justice and child welfare settings um, here in Denver for a little while, a couple decades. And one of the things um, that I've noticed is that kids that end up at Gilliam uh, Detention Center um, have little to no access to these types of services. So my question is, is if a young person who is currently being detained at Gilliam for a variety of reasons, right? It most, I mean, they have allegedly committed a crime. However, we also know that comes with a whole host of other things that could be going on for that young person. Um, but if they are um, picked up and are, you know, um, we're, we're using fentanyl or we're using, you know, or have a history of use, um, would they have access to this withdrawal management program? And even further, my understanding is right now, they don't have access to the adolescent inpatient psychiatric unit, and they haven't for, I think, at least a decade. And right now, kids are languishing inside of Gilliam because they're waiting for a transport by the sheriffs to Pueblo to Simhip. And meanwhile, that transport's not happening within 24 hours. Sometimes it's happening 72 plus hours. And so just my question then begs like, what do we do about our young people? And if we're trying to address these issues and, and but we have kids who are in the detention system, who are in the juvenile justice system, who have the same issues that our youth that are in the community are same issues that our youth that we have in child welfare, why are they treated differently? And why do they not have access to these services? Thank you, Councilwoman, for that question. Um, let's see here. Um, Sorry, so, it was a lot. <laughs> pardon me? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, on, the, on the bright side, we partner very closely with Denver, Denver Juvenile um, Detention or um, uh, Diversion Services. And um, that's on the plus side. On another plus side, the standard of accessing adolescent substance treatment used to be um, two-thirds of adolescents access substance treatment by dropping out of school, getting involved with juvenile justice, then accessing substance treatment services. And for decades, um, juvenile um, justice has been the largest payer of adolescent substance treatment. Mm -hmm. We've made huge strides with that, especially in the city of Denver now, by being in 11 school-based health centers and cutting that whole 
um, school to prison pipeline off at the pass. Um, so that's the bright side. The less bright side, as you pointed out, um, I'm not aware that, uh, I think there's huge opportunity for justice involved youth, especially um, incarcerated like at the Gilliam to be able to access um, medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. That's just a huge opportunity and we would be very willing to be part of that solution. Great, thank you. And, and I would love to continue the conversation around accessing the um, adolescent psychiatric unit for these young people. I think the reason that I've been given in the past is that there's not a, there's not capacity for a forensic unit as such as there is for adults. However, I question that again, if like, what does that mean? And, and what, are the, what are the things that are needed in order to make that come, like come, uh, come make that happen, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like how do we actually then make that happen so that kids are not sitting and waiting and they're not sitting and waiting. We have, meanwhile, we have staff at Gilliam who are not perhaps trained to be dealing with a young person who is in a mental health crisis. Uh, and then you're dependent upon the sheriffs to be able to transport. And we know that they're busy and they're also understaffed. So how are we getting these kids to the, to the proper place that they need to be? And so I would love to engage in a um, conversation about that. Um, I think the last piece on this is when you say access, um, that you know, percentage of, of young people who are accessing substance use treatment, one thing I will say in having, in my experience, in trying to connect kids to substance use treatment, there aren't many options. So then I question the number of percentage of kids that are trying to access because I think that number is greater of the attempts to access. The actual access is because of the lack of actual providers who are willing to serve youth that are dealing with substance use disorder. And I think that is the piece that I am very curious about. How do we solve for that? How do we help providers um, you know, come into a place that they feel like they can help young people who are suffering with this disease? And to get to curb them from then ending up um, going further down the system um, and, and, and perhaps, you know, unfortunately, um, having more deaths of, of our young people rather than getting them out of that. So I'd love to engage in those conversations. I'm always asking these questions of like, you know, whether it's Signal Behavioral Health, who I know um, manages the Medicaid dollars to pay for substance use treatment, how often are they paying for adolescents or is it only going towards adults? And how do we equal that playing field to give them equal access to those things? Councilwoman, just briefly, I think those are excellent points. Um, there is major opportunity for people who are in custody to be able to access inpatient level psychiatric services, as you pointed out, nearly, nearly impossible, maybe even impossible. Again, um, I, and I think some of that's related to regulatory issues um, that make that very difficult. And um, again, we would be very eager to be part of a solution around that. There's, that's what we do at Denver Health. We find creative, innovative solutions like a mobile methadone van. Um, Let's see here. And then the second part of your, um, yes, uh, we also have a severe workforce issue, um, even in our state. Um, psychiatric nurses, um, Councilman Watson, I think you asked what could be done to improve access to care. And for methadone, psychiatric nurses um, would really help us out. We could expand hours um, in which the methadone programs are available to dose and dispense. 
Um, so anything that increases the availability of psychiatric nurses, um, social workers, licensed professional counselors, licensed um, LMFTs, licensed marriage family therapists um, would really be helpful for us. Um, we have an innovative solution at um, Denver Health, the CAM Academy, um, Center for Addiction Medicine Academy that's developing curriculum to really train people up in our state to feel comfortable and confident and competent taking care of youth, especially, which can be rather tricky and subspecialized. Thank you so much um, for all of that. And, and again, I look forward to figuring out how we can partner and, and address these um, needs going forward. Thank you for the wonderful presentation and, and council members, your amazing questions. I think we learned a lot today and I'm sure that there's much more that we have to learn. Um, with all of that said, we don't have anything on consent. Oh, Councilman Flynn, did you jump back in the queue here? Or maybe on accident? Oh, okay. <laughs> just want to make sure we still have a few minutes left, so I was just making sure. Um, with, with all of that said, uh, we are adjourned. Thank you.